You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And when you found your place there, let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study. Our great God, you are the ground of our confidence and our boasting. We thank you that because of what you have secured for us at Calvary, we can even rejoice and look with great hope and expectation to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for such a perfect Savior, so gracious and so perfect a salvation which has met our every need, satisfied our every longing. And we pray now that you would sanctify us by your word. Your people cry out to you with hearts of gratitude and blessing and thanksgiving for all that you've provided in your word. And we pray now that you would feed us with scripture and may your word be the bread to our souls and to our hungry palates that we might give glory to Christ and to you for what you reveal in it. We ask, O Spirit of God, that you would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide and that your glory would be our everlasting concern. In Christ's name, amen. In John chapter 7, we are actually nearing the end of John chapter 7. And Lord willing, because I certainly am, by the end of next week, we will be done with John chapter 7. So this week and next week, and then we'll be introducing chapter 8. In John chapter 7, we have seen a a few different uh, themes surface over and over again. And we've noticed these as as they've come up, and we've worked our way through this chapter. Uh, Three of them particularly, first, we have seen this constant intention by the enemies of Jesus to do him harm. A constant intention by the enemies of Jesus to do him harm. Chapter 7, verse 1 begins with John telling us that there was a faction in Jerusalem who were seeking to kill Jesus. And they were waiting for him to walk into Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, and they were going to seize him, and they were going to kill him. The second theme that we've seen come up again and again is the inability of those same people to do any harm to Jesus. They had an intention, but they had the inability. And John has told us time and again the reason for that inability is because his hour had not yet come. By the sovereignty of God, by the providence of God, by the power of God, it was not yet time for his son to fall into the hands of sinful men and to be crucified and to rise again. It would be another six months. So because the timetable of God was not fulfilled... As much as they intended to do him harm, they were unable, restrained by the grace of God and restrained by the power of God and his sovereignty from doing anything to Jesus which was out of keeping with God's timetable. And a third theme that we have seen come up again and again in John chapter 7 is the reactions of people to Jesus' teaching. I'm unaware of any other chapter in all of the Gospels where we get an insight into as much insight into what people were saying and thinking about Jesus and his teaching as we have in John chapter 7. There are other chapters where we have dialogues between Jesus and people that he was teaching, the crowds, for instance, or the Pharisees, like chapter 8, for instance, and chapter 10. But in no other chapter in all four Gospels am I aware of a chapter where we get an insight into what everybody was saying. It's as if John tells us this group was thinking this, and this group was thinking that, and this group was thinking the other. It's like a first century George Barna. John had his pulse on what the people were saying and thinking. And during this week of the Feast of Tabernacles, if you had walked out into the crowd and just tapped any random Jew on the shoulder, 
and said, what, what do you think of what you've just heard? He's been teaching in the temple since the middle of the week. You've heard what he has to say. What do you think? He would give you one of the responses that you read of in John chapter 7. In fact, John chapter 7 is sprinkled with this group said this, and this group said this, and this group argued with this group. People were divided on the subject of who Jesus was. In fact, if you were to put one word on the rest of John chapter 7 from 40 verse on, from verse 40, 40 onward, it would be the word division. In fact, that is how John characterizes it in verse 43. In verse 43, Jesus, John says, so a division occurred in the crowd because of him. So verse 40, all the way through the end of the chapter, verse 52, is really John's explanation of what people were saying and thinking regarding Jesus and what he had just taught them. And we get a pulse, we get our, our finger on the pulse of what people were doing and what we, people were saying, and the objections that people were raising to what Jesus had just said. There's no more teaching of Jesus in John chapter 7. We've come to the end of that. And we've just concluded his magnanimous invitation in verses 37 through 39. And now the rest of the chapter is division. In fact, the rest of the chapter can be divided up, or outlined, I guess. You can divide it up around this theme of division. Outlined around the theme of division in verses 40 through 44, there is division among the people. Division among the people. Read verses 40 to 44 with me. And this is the passage we're going to be covering today. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. Others were saying, this is the Christ. And still others were saying, surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. Some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. And then in verses 45 through 52, there is division among the leaders. You have in 40 through 44, division among the people. In verses 45 through the end of the chapter, division among the leaders. Look at verse 45. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, Never has a man spoken the way this man speaks. The Pharisees then answered them, You've not also been led astray, have you? No one of the rulers of the Pharisees has believed on him, has he? But this crowd, which does not know the law, is accursed. And Nicodemus, he who came to him before being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he's doing, does it? And they answered him, You're not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So verses 40 through 44, division among the people. Verses 45 through the end of the chapter, division among the leaders of the nation. The rest of this chapter is marked by division. The Jews, this, this is all to say that if you had gone out and asked any Jew there what he thought of Jesus, you would have gotten a variety of different answers. And the same thing is true today, by the way. If you go out and you take ten, ten names at random out of the phone book, and you call them up or stop on their doorstep and present to them the claims of Christ, you're likely going to get one of the reactions that you find in verses 40 to 44, or one of the reactions that you find in verses 45 to the end of the chapter. And reactions to Jesus have not changed in 2,000 years. People respond the same way today that they have always responded to the truth claims of Jesus. There's an old adage that says, if you, if you ask three Jews a question, you'll get four different opinions. And that's kind of the same thing that we see here in this chapter. The truth claims of Jesus have been presented, and then there are all of these varieties of camps and groups of people. There was a division among the entire nation regarding the person of Jesus. So today we're going to look at the division among the people, verses 40 to 44, and the next week, Lord willing, we'll look at the division among the leaders in verses 45 through the end of the chapter. In verses 40 through 44, I want you to notice a couple of things. You will notice that John records that the reactions among the crowd, among the people, fell into three different categories or three different camps. There was, first of all, those in verse 40 who said, He is the prophet. 
We'll get into what they meant by that in just a moment. He's the prophet. Still others, this is a different group, group two, said he is the Christ. He certainly is the Christ. And then there was another group who said he is neither the prophet nor the Christ, and they appeal to Scripture to deny the legitimacy of Jesus' claims, and they say that he is neither the prophet nor the Christ. He is the prophet, he is the Christ, and a group that said he is neither. Those are the three groups among the people, or three camps that the people fell into in the crowd on the day that Jesus got done proclaiming his gracious invitation in verses 38 and 39. The second thing I want you to notice is what is at the beginning of verse 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. The reaction that is recorded among the people in verses 40 through 44 is a reaction to the words of Jesus. The words of Jesus, not his deeds. In other words, they're not discussing his miracles. And John is telling us that everything that we have recorded here about the reaction of the crowd was a reaction that people had to his teaching. Now, what words is it that John has in mind? I think principally he's referring to the invitation of verses 38 and 39, or 37 and 38. He who thirsts, come to me and drink. He's presented himself as the living waters, the fountain of living waters, the satisfaction for the thirsty soul the soul that seeks after salvation and desires to know God and knows its need for forgiveness and regeneration and life and a clean, cleansed conscience, Jesus is addressing those people. And I think John is saying when they heard that invitation on the last and final day of the feast, and the people started talking after Jesus spoke, this is what they started to say. I think he's referring to the invitation. I do also believe that it's possible that John might have in mind not just the invitation of verses 38, verse 38 and 37, but everything that Jesus had taught in the temple since verse 14. Verse 14, he went into the temple in the middle of the week and began to teach. Remember that? And he was confronted by the Pharisees and he responded to them. And they had the discussion about the miracle that he had done 18 months earlier. And then he had talked with them about his origin and where he came from. And he said, you know where I'm from or you think you know where I'm from, but I've come from the Father. And then he has given them this invitation. The last three days of teaching that he has been involved in, in the temple, unhindered, before the people, John is saying when, when all of the teaching of Jesus was finished and he culminated with this great invitation, this is the response of the people. They fell into these three camps or these three categories. It's important to notice that this is the reaction of the people to Jesus' words and not his miracles. Do you know what is, did you, have you noticed when we went through John chapter 7 what is missing from John 7? Miracles. There's no miracle recorded in John chapter 7. As far as we know from the record of John, Jesus did no miracle in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles during this week that John 7 records. No miracles were done during that week. Why did Jesus not do any miracles during the Feast of Tabernacles? And John tells us the people are reacting to his teaching. It's the teaching that is the issue. Why no miracles? Could Jesus have done miracles? Yeah, he could have. He could have done any number of signs in the temple, outside of the temple, in the streets of Jerusalem. He could have raised the dead. He could have healed the sick. He could have made the lame to walk. He could have done any other sign. But there's there's no sign recorded in John chapter 7. In fact, the only sign that is mentioned in John chapter 7 is the miracle he did back in chapter 5, 18 months prior. That's the only miracle where Jesus said, I made a man well on the Sabbath and you seek to kill me. And that's when they said, seek to kill you. We don't seek to kill you. Who seeks to kill you? And they denied that they were seeking to kill him. The issue in John 7, in the middle of that chapter, was the miracle that was done 18 months prior. No other miracles are recorded. No other miracles are mentioned. Why? Could Jesus have wowed the people? He could have wowed the people. But listen, 
Is Jesus interested in a bunch of wowed followers? Is He really after people who seek Him and believe upon Him because of miracles, because of signs? Is Jesus after that? He had such a group back in chapter 6. Remember them? The sign of the bread and the fish, and the people followed Him when they saw the signs, and what did they want? More signs. Feed us again. And they would have made him king in chapter 6. And Jesus left them. He departed from them because he knew that they wanted to take him by force and make him king. As long as he could do the miracles and the signs and produce food for them and feed their hungry stomachs, they were willing to make him king. But really the issue in chapter 6 was, are you willing to accept what I teach and what I say about myself? I think that that's the issue in John chapter 7 as well. Are you willing to accept what I teach about myself? No signs. He's not interested in wowed followers who go after him because he will do a neat trick or a miracle or wow their senses or impress them. He had that in chapter 6. They weren't interested in following his teaching. At the core of John chapter 7 is this. I am the fountain of living waters. If you want salvation, come to me and take me at my word and believe upon my word. And if you believe my word, you will have eternal life. Will you accept what I say about myself No signs, no miracles, no confirming evidence. Will you embrace what I say about myself and my ability to meet your needs? That's the issue in John chapter 7. The whole nation had to be confronted with his claims, his truth claims, and who he said about himself, and they needed to be forced the issue. Will we embrace him as our Messiah based upon his word and his word alone? And really, that is the issue then, and it is still the issue now. Will we embrace what God's word says and stand upon that and that alone. Without evidence, without miracles. Look, miracles can't create faith. They can't. Miracles cannot make an unbelieving heart believe. Miracles cannot make a darkness-loving heart love and embrace the light. Only God, by His sovereign grace and a move of His Spirit and His goodness through regeneration, can do that. Miracles cannot do that. So the issue then, just like the issue today is, Will we take God at His word and believe what He has said? I was thinking back through this morning. I I I don't know if I can come up with a single false religion, a single cult, a single ism, or a movement that threatens modern evangelicalism or a wacky branch of Christianity and evangelicalism or a single bizarre theology that does not have at its core, either practically or verbally, a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture. I can't come up with one. Whether it is extreme charismatics and word faith people who think that they get visions and revelations and words from God, or whether it is the bizarre manifestations among the spiritual warfare movement that goes on where people look to something else for the substance and and, and ground for truth, there is not a single thing that threatens evangelicalism today that does not have at its very core a denial, either in practice or in word, of the sufficiency of what God has said. Everything goes back to the sufficiency of Scripture. And the issue then is the same as the issue today. Will you believe it? And will you accept it as true on face value? Do you believe that what God said is as true? And will you embrace Him on His terms? And it's a regenerated heart that readily and willingly says, yes, I will take God's Word at face value and accept it as true. And I will stake my life and my eternity upon it. All right, there are three groups. Now let's look at these three groups. That All that sort of served as an introduction and a review. Now there are these three groups. The first is introduced to us in verse... 40. Some of the people, therefore, when they heard these words, were saying, this certainly is the prophet. All right. Now, of these, of these three groups, we have the first camp over here. It says, this certainly is the prophet. Now, what do they mean by that? That he is 
a prophet. They don't say that we believe that he is a prophet. But they actually have a specific prophet in mind. They say of Jesus, we believe this certainly is the prophet. Now, which prophet? They are referring back to a promise that God gave through Moses in Deuteronomy 18. And in fact, this came up back in chapter 1 with John the Baptist when they came to John the Baptist and said, are you the prophet? And now they're asking, they're saying of Jesus, we believe that he is the prophet. And it was Deuteronomy 18 where God said through Moses, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command them. It command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself were required of him. Deuteronomy 18, 18. I will raise up for you, for you people, the nation of Israel, a prophet like Moses, whose words I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak. And you must listen to him. And that prophet promised through Moses in Deuteronomy 18 came to be known as the prophet. And the Jews, just as with the, their opinion about who Jesus was and what office he fulfilled, they were divided also as to who the prophet was. So if you had asked a Jew, hey, who's the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? If you had asked three Jews, guess how many answers you would have gotten? Four. They were anything but agreed upon who the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 was. Some of them believed that the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 was Elijah, the prophet who was taken up into heaven alive in the chariot of fire. They believed that he would come again in fulfillment of Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, which says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet, before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Some of the Jews said the prophet in Deuteronomy 18 is later in Malachi 4 identified as Elijah, and that they believed that before the Messiah would come, Elijah would come from heaven, and he would be the forerunner, the precursor to the Messiah, who would prepare the way of the Lord for the Messiah, so that when the Messiah arrived, he would have a prophet, Elijah, with him when he, when he manifested himself. That was one group. There was a second group who said, no, the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 is not Elijah. It's one of the other prophets, Jeremiah or Isaiah or Ezekiel, one of the heavy hitters, one of the big guys, who's going to be raised from the dead, who will attend Elijah and the Messiah when they come. So there was a group who said, when the Messiah arrives, he'll have Elijah, and he will have another one of the prophets come back from the dead, Jeremiah or Isaiah or one of the other ones, who will also come back and appear with the Messiah. That was another group of Jews. Then there was a third group of Jews who said that the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 was none other than the Messiah himself. And they equated the two and said what Moses has promised in Deuteronomy 18 was the Messiah because he's going to be that prophet. He is the fulfillment. The Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, he is the one who will fulfill that prophecy. Now guess which one of those three groups was right? It was the third group. In fact, Peter, in Acts chapter 3, verse 22 identifies, quotes Deuteronomy 18, and says that was fulfilled by Jesus. Stephen, in Acts chapter 7, verse 37, quotes that passage and identifies that it was fulfilled in Jesus. It was this third group who believed that Jesus was the, uh, sorry, who believed that the prophet of Deuteronomy 18 was the Messiah. That was the group who had it right. And that's exactly what Scripture teaches. And that is what this first group, they obviously do not believe that the prophet and the Messiah are the same, this first group must either believe that the prophet was one of the other prophets risen from the dead or Elijah come back. And they must have believed that because John distinguishes that group from a second group who said he is the Christ. So there were some who were willing to say he is the prophet. Now technically, technically this group is correct, are they not? Was Jesus the prophet of Deuteronomy 18? He certainly was. So what they say is correct. He is that prophet. 
But what they say falls far short because they differentiated that prophet from the Messiah. See, they should have gone all the way down the spectrum and been willing to say, He is God the Son, the Son of God, the Son of David, the Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One, the Prophet. They were only willing to go so far. He's a prophet. And what they said, we are willing to, we are willing to embrace the idea that he is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. But they weren't willing to come far enough to say that he is the Christ. So there's the second group. The first group, he is the prophet. Technically, they're correct. But they're correct as far as it goes. The problem is it doesn't go far enough. It's like the group at the beginning of John chapter 7 who said, he's a good man. Is that a true statement or a false statement? It's a true statement. The problem is it doesn't affirm enough. Same thing with this first group. Second group. Certainly this is the Christ, they say, verse 41. Others were saying, this is the Christ. Now, is what they said correct or incorrect? It is correct. Now, really, you should be able to group both of these groups into one group and say they had both of them had it right. The second group affirms that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel, the long-promised one, the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. So the first group comes far, but not far enough. The second group comes, and we're willing to say, not only do we believe that he is the prophet, but we also believe that and we are willing to say that he is the Christ. Now, one thing that both of these groups have in common, and one thing that we can say of them, is that they had a very elevated and high view of Jesus, did they not? In order to affirm, I mean, I mean, listen, think of this. In the nation of Jews, having heard everything he said, not everybody rejected his claims on the surface and on the face of it. Some were willing to affirm a very a higher view of Jesus than we might have expected from a bunch of hostile Jews. Some of them were willing to say that we believe he fulfills Deuteronomy 18. He is that one. Others were saying willing to say we believe that he is the Christ. I mean, that's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's coming a long ways. Not quite far enough, but that's coming a long ways. Both of them, both of these groups, have a fairly high view of him. At least they're willing to admit that he comes from God. He is sent by God. He's a fulfillment of Scripture. He was the promised one. He's spoken of in the Old Testament. And if they're willing to embrace the idea that he is the Messiah or the prophet, then they are willing also to affirm that what he speaks, he speaks truthfully, and he speaks on God's authority, and what he says comes from God. Both of those groups, by their confession, would have to be willing to say that. Now, here's the question. Is saving faith represented in either of those two groups? Even the group that says, certainly this is the Christ. Is that an expression of saving faith? To say, this is the Christ, is that an expression of saving faith? Now, you might be willing to say, well, yeah, of course. I mean, isn't that, isn't that the basics of what we believe and teach? It certainly is, at least foundational. You have to begin there. But to confess that Jesus is who he said he is, is that sufficient to save one? It's not sufficient to save one. See, there is a, there is a big difference between acknowledging that what Jesus says is true and casting your entire hope for eternal life and salvation upon what he says and embracing Him, and taking Him. Listen, the group in chapter 6 who came to Him and wanted to make Him king, they would have been willing to say He is the Christ. But when He taught them and said, I am the living bread, and you must eat My flesh, and drink My blood, and without Me you have no hope of eternal life, and the only way you can even come to Me is if the Father sent you, and the only way you even belong to Me is if the Father gave you to Me. When He said all of that, they said, it's too much. They're not interested in hearing any of that. And they turned and they walked away. Acknowledging that Jesus is the Christ is insufficient for eternal life. They needed to go even further than that and to say, we believe that He is the Son of God and that He is God manifested in the flesh. And Jesus will get into this in John chapter 8. Unless you believe that ego I am, 
you will die in your sins. It's not enough to confess he's the prophet. It's not enough to confess that he's the Christ. You must be willing to confess that he is God in human flesh, that he is who he says he is, and cast all of your hope for eternal life upon him. And without that, you cannot and you will not be saved. Demons acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ. That is not sufficient, and that is not saving faith. As far as these Jews have come in their willingness to acknowledge who he is, they have not come far enough and been willing to acknowledge that um, he is who he said he was in its entirety and to cast their entire hope for eternal life and salvation upon him. Now there is a third group. There's the first group. He's the prophet. The second group, certainly he's the Christ. And now there is the third group who says he is neither. He's neither the prophet nor the Christ. And look at their objection. Their objection really is a denial of what they have been presented with. It is a denial, and it is a denial presented in the form of two questions. Both of these questions are an appeal to Old Testament Scripture, which makes their denial a very interesting one. It is a denial in the form of two questions. The first question is presented in the form that would require a negative answer. Verse 41, Surely the Christ is not going to come from Galilee, is he? And that question is posed in such a way as to demand that everybody who listened to it would say, no, of course not. I mean, it's one of those hypothetical questions or rhetorical questions that you throw out where the answer seems to be patently obvious on the surface of it. Surely the Christ isn't going to come from Galilee. And the second question is posed in such a way, is stated in such a way, as to demand a positive answer. Verse 42, Has not the Scripture said that the Christ comes from the descendants of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David was? They're appealing to two very commonly held views about the Messiah. They are appealing to two facts that everybody, all Jews, acknowledge. Now, I said earlier, you ask three Jews a question, you get four different opinions. That's true. But listen, when you ask four Jews, you could ask a hundred Jews, what is the lineage of the Messiah? All of them would say Davidic, son of David. They all agreed on that. And the other thing that... Almost every, though not all, almost every Jew agreed with, and it was seen patently obvious on the surface, was that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem, not Galilee. Where was Jesus from? He was from Galilee. He was from Nazareth. He was known as Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nazareth was in Galilee. And what these people raise as an objection, and they appeal to Scripture, what they raise as an objection against Jesus has to do with his origins. If Jesus were the Messiah, so the reasoning would go, he would not be called Jesus of Nazareth. He'd be called Jesus of Bethlehem. That's what they're thinking. Now, technically, Malachi chapter 5, verse 2, Out of you, Bethlehem, a prophet, shall become a ruler uh, a ruler for me. Too little to be uh, named among the clans of Judah shall come forth from me to me a ruler whose days have been from long ago or from eternity. He will be an eternal ruler. That was the promise of Malachi 5, verse 2. Now, the promise of Malachi 5, verse 2, only required that the Christ be born in Bethlehem. Not that he grow up and hail from and live his entire life in Bethlehem, but that just his origin, he would come through Bethlehem. And Jesus, in Matthew chapter 2, fulfilled that by being born in Bethlehem. So, But they're looking at his origins. Of all of the regions of the nation, none was more despised than the northern region of Galilee. And of all of the cities in that most despised of regions, no city was more despised than Nazareth. It was the lowliest of the lowest backwoods, backwater, backwards town in all of the northern region. The most humble origin possible is from Nazareth. And in chapter 1, do you remember when Philip introduced him to Nathaniel? Philip said to Nathaniel, Come and see the one we have found, the one of whom Moses and the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. 
The most inconceivable confession ever. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And what was Nathaniel's response? Can anything good come out of Galilee? That's how everybody felt. Even the leaders, you see it in verse 52. Check and see that no prophet ever has arisen out of Galilee. To acknowledge that Jesus came from Galilee is to say, He can't be the prophet. No prophet comes from Galilee. He certainly cannot be the Christ because He doesn't hail from Bethlehem. And the second objection that they offer has to do with His lineage. He doesn't come from the line of David. They expected that Jesus would come from Bethlehem and that He would come out of Bethlehem and be from Beth. Sorry, their expectation was that the Messiah would come from Bethlehem and that that Messiah would be of the lineage of David. And the irony of their objection, even though they're appealing to Scripture, the irony of their objection is that the very thing that they raise as an objection to Jesus' claims ends up being the very proof that He is who He said He is. Because as you and I read this, we know they're objecting to these two things, but if they went and just did a basic search of the records, they would find that His lineage is Davidic and that He was born in Bethlehem and all of their objections would melt away. But they don't seem willing to do this. Jesus was of the line of David through both Mary and Joseph. Through Mary as a physical descendant, through Joseph as a legal descendant of David. So through Mary, he was physically the descendant of David. And through Joseph, he, he had every right to the heir of David's throne through Joseph because Joseph was his adopted father. So Jesus, Jesus was twofold a descendant of David through his mother and through his father. And not only that, but he was born in Bethlehem, as everybody acknowledged. Now they could have, with either one of these objections, let's just take the first. They could have gone in Jerusalem and said, born in Bethlehem. Or born in Nazareth. We think he's born in Nazareth. They could have done a search through the records and found out that he was born in Bethlehem, right? That was a matter of public record. Now, either they're being intellectually dishonest and they know the truth, but they're refusing to admit it, or they're trying to twist Scripture to say he should hail his entire life from Bethlehem, or maybe they're just ignorant of the fact, but they're really not interested in knowing the truth. Or maybe it is that they just raise this objection and it's a shallow, inane, stupid, superficial, meaningless objection but they're really not interested in knowing the truth. Do you know any unbelievers like that? Do you know that most objections that unbelievers raise to the faith are shallow, superficial, and inane, and they're easily answerable just like that? But the raising of the objection is enough to justify in their own heart and in their own mind their perpetual unbelief and their love for darkness. The second objection was the same. Uh, where was he, Who did he come from? What was his lineage? They could have gone just a few blocks away into the temple records and seeing that Jesus not only was born in Bethlehem, but that his mother and his father were both descendants of David, and so he did come from the Davidic line. Do you realize that the humble origins of Jesus is just as much a stumbling block today as it was back then? Just as much a stumbling block today as it was back then. People look at us and they say, you're telling me that a man born from a most despised group of people and most despised planet on the face of the earth in 12 time zones away in the city of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, from Nazareth, his dad was a poor Jewish carpenter, that this man who died outside of that city on a Roman cross while all of his earthly possessions were gambled away at the foot of that cross, that that man whose birth was shrouded in scandal, who lived only 30 years, ruled no kingdoms, wrote no books, seemed to have accomplished little to nothing during his earthly life, that that man is worthy of my worship. And furthermore, you're suggesting to me that my eternal destiny hinges on what I think and what I do with that man? You and I have to admit, there is nothing alluring or appealing about that message, is there? Nothing at all. But that is the point. To God's elect, to those who are being saved, that message is not foolishness. That message is the power of God 
and the glory of God's name and the glory of truth. You and I look at that message and what the world regards as foolish and inane is to us the most precious gem of all known truth. Because God has opened our eyes to love that truth. But, to some people, the humble origins of Jesus are just as much a stumbling block as they have ever been. Look at verse 43. John states what is now obvious for us. So a division occurred in the crowd because of him. A division, the word is actually schisma in the Greek from which we get our word schism. The English word schism usually carries with it the idea of a heated debate or a heated division. It's not that in the Greek, it just means faction. John's just saying, these are the camps. People came into this camp, people came into that camp. There was a division in the crowd, and you've walked out there and talked to three Jews, you would have likely found three or four of them in each of these camps all the way up because people were divided. And it was probably, I would suspect, the reality of that division which prompts the action in verse 44. When they say some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The reason is the same as it's been through the whole chapter. It's not the timing of God. But I don't think that this is a fourth group. I think this is some among the third group. This is not a fourth group who wanted to lay hands on him. There were some who said he's the prophet, some who said he's the Christ. There were some who said he is neither the prophet nor the Christ. And amongst this third group, there is a faction, a small number of them, that wished they could seize Jesus. And I think the desire to seize him is instigated by the reality of the division. They are looking at Jesus and saying he is not good for the nation. The same conclusion they come to in chapter 11. He is not good for the nation. People are lining up on all sides of this. Schism is not good. Factions are not good. We need to agree. So let's do away with this divisive individual and they attempt to seize him. But lo and behold, as we have seen all the way through chapter 7, there is nothing to fear because the timing of God is not yet. And so they come to the conclusion that they cannot seize him and they cease that attempt. Among the people, three factions. They were all divided regarding Jesus. Today, Jesus Christ remains the most divisive figure in all of human history. You realize that? There is nothing that will dissolve a political alliance faster than bringing up the truth claims of Jesus Christ. You can get conservative packs together, and you can get the moral majority to join with the Tea Party and the right-wingers and the extreme right-wingers and the moderates and the the philosophical conservatives and the economic conservatives and the Mormons and the Catholics and the rabbis and any other anybody else who even tilts on the far end of the right spectrum. You can get them all together in a room and you can have them all agree together. We will pass moral legislation. We will legislate our morality. We will change our culture. We will make it more moral. We will get a Mormon elected to the White House. You can have them all agree on that. And guess what happens when you bring up the truth claims of Jesus and drop it in the middle of that coalition? They will all run back to the darkness like a bunch of cockroaches when the lights come on. And the whole political unity divides and dissolves in an instant. Why? Because the issue is Jesus. And I may suggest to you that you and I fail to be faithful to Him if we do not keep Him as the central issue of everything. We can't package Him up and put Him in a closet and shut the door, close the curtain, turn off the light, and just agree that we're not going to talk about that because we have more important things to accomplish in our nation and our world. It does not work that way. It cannot work that way. Any religious ecumenical movement, you can get all of the religious people together, and you could say, do you all agree about Jesus? No, but we're just not willing to talk about him, because we want to feed the poor, and we want to reach this people, and we want to accomplish this for our city, and we want to get together and we want to have a prayer walk or a prayer vigil. I'll tell you something, whether it's a political organization or a religious organization, you drop Jesus and his truth claims into the middle of that, 
and the wheels will fall off of that cart faster than you can imagine. The whole thing comes to a screeching halt. And it must be so. It cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. If we are to be faithful, it must be so. This is the irony of it. Jesus Christ is the most divisive figure in human history, and at the very same time, He is the most uniting figure in human history. Rightly understood. He divides those who are His from those who are not His. Those who are in Him with those who belong to the world and to the evil one. He divides those of us who are in Him with those who do not belong to Him. And then for those of us who are in Him, He provides the basis and the foundation for the most sublime and blessed unity possible. Something the world knows nothing of. He is at the same time the most divisive figure in human history and the basis for the most sublime of unity that the world, that we could ever hope to know. Certainly the world does not know it. And it must be so. If we are to be faithful, that must be the case. That division must occur before true unity can take place. He divided people back then. He will divide people today. And so the issue always is, will you embrace what he says? Or will you try and gag him in order to embrace what a whole bunch of other people will say and accomplish what you think needs to be accomplished? Let's pray. Our God, we are grateful that you have united those who truly belong to your Son in the common bond of the faith, once for all delivered to the saints. And we know that that our Savior is a divisive figure, and we know that he is unpopular. He always has been. But may you give grace to those who belong to him that we might stand to proclaim the truth and that we might not be lulled or lured into a false sense of unity and security, something the world wants to foster upon us, but not something which is of you. And may we find ourselves united with Christ and those who truly belong to him, standing in the truth, strengthened by your spirit. For the Father's glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.